Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This week on the Garden DC podcast, I am joined by garden designer Carolyn Mullet, who has a Facebook community of over 1 million gardening enthusiasts. And a few years ago, she launched Carex Tours, uh, crafting garden travel experiences. Welcome, Carolyn. Thank you. It's so nice of you to have me. Yay. And I have to let our listeners in on a little secret in that we only live a couple blocks apart <laughs> from yes. each other. We're actually so, using a cup and a string. Cups yes. And string. <laughs> I was going to say, we could, I don't know, maybe by how the crow flies, be out in our backyards yelling back and forth. But True. for uh, for a listener, better experience, we'll do it the old-fashioned podcast way. So, um the reason uh, for the occasion, and I've wanted to have you on the show for a little bit to talk about garden designs and your experiences and your big Facebook group, is that you have a book coming out soon from Timber Press. Can you tell us the title and, and when that's coming out? Oh, the title. It's very long. But the short version is, the, the title is Adventures in Eden. Um, and it's uh, a... a look into 50 gardens in Europe that are private and were mostly made in the 21st century. Hmm. So almost all modern gardens. Well, you could say they are modern in the sense that they're of our time, but some of them are traditional and some are uh, uh, much more modern. Uh, contemporary is maybe a better way to look at it. There, most of mm-hmm. them are a fusion of a couple of uh, different styles, you might say. Some that look back a little bit, like a lot of them have topiary and hedges, which are very prevalent in Europe, um, along with a more naturalistic kind of planting. So it, it it isn't modern in the sense that we sometimes think of it here in our mm-hmm. country. Um, it's a, it's a fusion. It's uh, it's a, a plant rich. They're usually plant rich gardens, um, because that is what I think our our era of garden design is about. Hmm. Yeah, and I think the the phrase modern garden might strike some listeners as, say, a very stark sculpture garden, maybe with boxwood hedges or other hedges in between, and then just one giant sculpture on a plinth and nothing else. <laughs> well, <laughs> sometimes, yeah, I I can I know that people feel think that way, and so mm-hmm. that's why I do think of them as modern gardens, but they aren't the kind of uh, perhaps, I hope I don't offend landscape architects by saying this, but a lot of times landscape architects make spaces around museums or uh, uh, big commercial buildings 
or government buildings that are would fit that description. But these are private gardens. They're personal uh, kind of uh, havens, let's say, for the people that live in the house that's connected to the garden. And that's a, a great point that these are personal havens and not public spaces, although you had access to them. So maybe a little bit later in the talk, we'll, we'll talk about how you got access to some of these and, and or how you came across or found them. Uh, but first, I want to talk about you and your garden journey um, and just let us know a little bit about your background. Um, were you always a gardener? Were you always into ornamental gardening? Did you ever grow edibles? Um, I First of all, I grew up uh, in northern Indiana, about two hours from Chicago. Uh, some people may know, you know, the toll road that goes across northern Indiana. I was maybe a half hour south of there. Um, it's about a half hour and uh, lived out in the country four miles outside of a town of 4,000 people. So very country rural. Um, and until I was born, my, my, my family were farmers and then my father got ill and he could no longer farm. And so he became a carpenter and we no longer lived on the farm, but we, we, very much lived like farmers. So we had an acre um, of uh, a property that was an acre and three-fourths of that was the vegetable garden. And then around the other fourth uh, were my mother's flower beds. And so I, I grew up doing both. We, we canned and uh, froze and uh, butchered and uh, almost all of our food for uh, for our family of seven, uh, our our neighbors were all farmers, so we got eggs from the from the neighbors and milk and um, and a lot of times they would be the source of our you know we would butcher uh, a cow for for the meat or pigs, <laughs> and um, it all sounds very quaint right now. <laughs> if I'm sitting where I am right now, but that's the way I grew up. You know, there were four girls in the family and we would, uh, you know, we were all, we all had to go into the garden and help mom. And, and we did. And we prepared all, all of the food. I mean, it was just th that lifestyle. Uh, but when I, shall I continue or do you want to? Yeah. <laughs> so, but when I was an adult and had my first property, um, well, let me backtrack a little bit. The whole time that I was living at home and had to help mom with her with her gardening, um, I really hated it. I resented it. I didn't like it. You know, I never thought of myself as a gardener. Mm -hmm. But when I got my first house, when I bought my first house, um, I suddenly it just kicked in. It's like all those generations of nurturing the soil just took over and I became a gardener very quickly and um, I grew my own vegetables and I had ornamentals and it wasn't until we moved from uh, Indiana to the east coast 
that I really got into gardening because before that I had been a potter and that was my, that's what I spent all of my working hours doing. And uh, when we moved to Washington, um, it was, I just couldn't get set up in the way that I was used to. I, I was used to a much less complicated um, oversight from the government, that kind of system in Indiana. And it, it just seemed very hard. And so I floated for a while and did this and that. And then, and then um, as I was, was approaching 40, I decided I just really needed to find what I wanted to do in terms of my profession. So eventually I, I, I went back to school uh, at GW and I went through their residential landscape design program. And since then, that's what I've been doing. Except I did retire <laughs> uh, two years ago. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I'm currently not not doing it. But that's what I spent most of my adult life doing. And so after your the program at GWU, you were working for another landscape design firm, and then you started on your own for a while and had your own clients, well, correct? For most of most of the, I think 28 years or something like that, I worked for design build firms in this area. Yeah. In the, in the DC metro mm-hmm. area. So, and I, 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 uh, I tended to stay, you know, three to five years, learn what I could from that firm. And then I'd move on to another one where I thought there was something that I could learn there. Because when you come out of school, you really don't have the skills to do the kind of gardens that I wanted to do. My eyes were bigger than my, my, uh, uh, my skill set, let's put it mm-hmm. that way. And so I needed to learn about construction. I needed to learn about grading. I needed to learn about water features, all those kinds of things. And another thing, when we were in school, we really learned nothing about perennials. So I spent a, a lot of every project, you know, thinking about what perennials would work here, um, what grasses, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that for listeners who are interested in that GWU program, it has pretty much closed. It's closed. The, mm-hmm, and kind of morphed into more of a um, green um, type of program where it's more about design of landscapes for, like, say, lead projects or that sort of thing. It's folded that's, into that's another right. school. They yeah. really narrowed it down. And, uh, you know, a lot of people um, chasing very few jobs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there yeah. just isn't that much in, in this area. Plus, you have, you're then in competition with landscape architects mm-hmm. from other programs. So, you know, we no longer have a residential uh, landscape design um, teaching institution around here. Mm-hmm. But for while it existed, it was extremely popular, and many like you, it was a second career or even a third career. I know right. several right. people who, you know, they had a career in teaching or a career with the government, something totally <laughs> unrelated, and then said, "You know what? My love is gardening. Let's let's go for it." And my post-retirement career or my second career will be landscape design, and that seems to be a very common path. Um, it, yeah, I think it is. I think that's that most of the people saw it as a, well, I shouldn't say, see, I graduated 
in the uh, uh, 1987. So it's been so long that I don't know what happened in all those years. I know what I more recently I kind of know what's going on. But while I was working for uh, the design build firms, I, I was so busy I didn't have any. Uh, there was no time to really check back into what was happening with that program. So I don't really know. But while I when I was in it, there were an awful lot of people who just um, they were they were following their dream. They thought that mm -hmm. it, they would be happier. Their first their first career had turned out to not be satisfying at all. And so they saw this as a dream. I think one of the things that a lot of them didn't realize is that, you know, it was hard to make a living. And so that's why I stuck to uh, working for design build firms, because I needed a steady income. I needed the security of having a paycheck. Mm -hmm. And when you did strike on your own, uh, what uh, chose, what led you to choose uh, Carex Design as the name? What about Carex? Well, I had, um, I had used Carex for over, before it was ever popular. It was like 25, over 25 years ago, I started using Carex. And I did it because uh, a lot of my projects were in Montgomery County, uh, up around Potomac. And uh, Already at that time, there were we had issues with deer, and so we found out that Carex was a very good substitute for many of the things that deer ate as a ground cover. And so I started using Carex at that point. You could only get a there were only a few on the market. Um, you know, there was a, a very uh -huh. small selection. But gradually over the years, it became more and more popular, and I used more and more and more of it, and I grew to really having a, I felt like that's, that sedge said a lot about what I felt about design. I liked a looser kind of uh, grassy look. I'd liked it to be just a little wild, not really wild. Um, and so Carex seemed like a plant that if I was going to identify with anything, it would be a good point. On top of that, it was a branding issue for me. My first name is, you know, Carolyn. So C-A-R is the first three letters of my name, and that's the first three letters of Carex. And I also, in thinking about branding, um, loved the fact that it was very short, punchy, and it ended in an X, which I felt was a very strong kind of um, letter to end your name in. So th those were the reasons. Nice. Well, it's nice to know that there was a lot of thought behind it. Sometimes you, I see branding out there that I feel is almost random. <laughs> so well, it's nice to know that there's some actual uh, connection and personal thought. So that branding carried over into now your Carex Garden Tours or Carex Tours. Right. Well, I decided that in order to, I knew I was going to retire soon uh, when I was uh, tr trying to figure out how to start Carex Tours. So I decided that uh, I wanted to carry the name over. It would just be an easy transition 
to, you know, when I stopped doing my, the name of my company, was, uh, my design company was Carex dot dot garden designed by Carolyn Mullet. So uh, then I just took the first name Carex Tours, which was again, short and punchy. And I hoped it would say something about a kind of plant centric uh, the kind of tours that I wanted to give were plant-centric. Um, but I, I found out that a lot of people <laughs> didn't know Carex, you know, as a plant. And they said, yeah. Where does that name come from? Or we would be in a garden mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and I would be talking about, well, here's here's Carex so-and-so. And they'd say, is that what the name came from? <laughs> That's what I was going to ask you is if people asked you if it was a type of, you know, half your name, half another name, and that they would not even be familiar with the plant itself. So that's at least a good education once it once it comes across to them. Yeah, that's true. But it does sound like if you were making up a name of a of a new, I don't know, rheumatoid arthritis drug, it might be carrots. <laughs> Listen, I thought something like that yesterday, and I wish I could remember it now, but it was something like, it was some kind of medication, Carex something for, you know, let's say headaches or elbow, elbow pain or something. I was, and I just went, whoa, that's just so interesting that it's, you know, that they're using it in all other ways. I think it's a very good name for products. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the care the care part obviously is what they're relying on, mm-hmm. right? Um, for that, so um, with your garden tours, uh, you mainly take small groups, correct, and almost always to a European location. So you're not doing any um, in the Americas, correct? Well, I haven't so far, but see, I mm-hmm. only I only well. Uh, until two years ago, I was designing and I was t- doing tours. So I was so stretched that I couldn't think I could only do a certain amount. I could only do three or four tours a year. Now that um, now that I'm, I don't have the design work to do, I plan to expand the company. And I've been taking small steps in that direction, which, you know, COVID has kind of... <laughs> mm-hmm. um, pushed aside plans for a year, but that's okay. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll manage to get back on track. Um, and then I, I, uh, I hope to do, uh, tours in the U S as well as I want to go to South Africa. I want to go to Asia, Japan. I want to go to New Zealand, Australia. Um, I'd love to go to Korea. Lots of interesting Mm. garden stuff happening Mm -hmm. in Korea. So it will not only be uh, Europe in a mm-hmm. little while. I just can't say exactly when. Yeah. And once we can travel again, but at least with this pause, you're able to get a little more research and planning in. But when you plan a garden tour and put one together, do you do a scouting mission in advance to the actual locations or is it done internet or do you do a combination? Well, I do a combination if I can, but a lot of times I have not had either the finances nor the time to do scouting. So uh, I do, I, I'm always, um, uh, you know, 
every day there I run across gardens that I want to remember and I have a filing system on my computer where I it's by country or by region within a country and I just drop a, a screenshot of the garden in there and so that when I, if I decide I want to go to Scotland then I go to that file and I sort through what I've seen that I think is worthwhile and um, that's my starting point if I haven't been there yet and that then the other part is that I have a partner in Europe. Um, it's a Dutch company um, that has been in business for almost 40 years. And uh, Bert, the owner of the company, um, is very generous with his advice for me. He tells me what he thinks I should check into he thinks, you know, that he sometimes he puts together an itinerary and then I edit from there. I'm interested in different things than he is. He likes more traditional gardens than I do. Um, and I want to set myself apart as being a little bit more contemporary. Uh, so, uh, but we do, uh, you know, he's constantly on the, on the uh, lookout for gardens that would be good for my tours. He now knows what I want to do. What the kind of gardens that I want to have on my tours. So that's how I do it. And then I read everything I possibly can. I get magazines and newspapers, you know, from mainly England, where they, in England, the magazines cover the whole continent. I mean, they, they, they don't just cover only English uh -huh. gardens. So I get a lot of information from that. And I've gotten very good at just looking at um, a, gar a garden online and being able to tell whether that would be a garden that would be good to actually visit. I'm almost always right. Good. And you're looking for more on the private garden side, but your tours do include some of the, you know, more popular public gardens. The botanic, yeah, I, we usually mm -hmm. have one or two but, uh, public gardens, generally just one. But mm -hmm. any botanical garden, you know, that's in the area, we would go to that. Um, but I am, I am, um, I do want to go more to private gardens. I feel like um, it's again, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's the brand that I'm trying to build. That um, you know, many other tours do all the traditional, historical, public, mm -hmm. you know, gardens. I'm doing something different. Um, and can you describe the pacing of your tours? Are you trying to jam in as many as possible in no. uh, in your waking hours, or how do you no. how do you schedule it's just it? Two a day. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we do three. If they're small, if if let's say if they're two small gardens, we may try and fit them into the afternoon. One in the morning, one in the afternoon, or two, um, and that's it. So. Over a seven or eight day period, you'll see, you know, 14 to 18, 16 gardens. And so it's a lot of gardens, but you, but you can digest them. We don't want to be exhausted. We want to be able to spend longer in the garden, you know, 
Mm-hmm. If they're small gardens, an hour and a half, maybe, maybe a little more or two hours or a little more. So we have some flexibility since we're, you know, we're a small group, 10 to 20. You have, I have to have 10 in order for the tour to proceed. And I don't take more than 20. Hmm. And I can imagine that lets you have access to some of those smaller private gardens because of the small size of the group. Whereas going in a big coach tour, um, uh, you know, some of those owners are going to say a no to 50 people coming through. (laughs) I actually, I don't know about that. It could be Mm -hmm. that they say that, but I think the people that open their gardens are doing it, uh, one, because they they feel that they have a garden that's interesting to others and uh, they, they, you know, they, they open it for, the, for that reason, They're kind of to get strokes for themselves, you know, which is very nice. And then the other reason uh, is that they're uh, trying to earn income to pay for the garden. So uh, they charge per person or per, per coach. Sometimes they uh, charge that way. And uh, so I don't know that they would care so much if it was a large group or small group. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but they, it's, it's an income making proposition for them. That doesn't mean that they aren't really wonderful owners or anything like that. They're, they're, Mm -hmm. they're some of the nicest people that I've ever met. Um, but they do have these considerations, you know, and I think Mm -hmm. they're always happy to see coach parties and I doubt that they limit the size. Mm. And uh, getting back to the pace of a couple gardens a day, you know me, Carolyn, that, uh-huh. you know, I'm kind of like, I'll sleep when I'm dead, <laughs> and would, t- would tend to rush through and want to cram in, you know, 10 gardens in a day. But then your your point is very valid that you do get kind of overload and exhausted and mm-hmm. you can't even digest what you saw Um to be able to even go back and look at your photos and say, oh, that was that garden and the experience of, of it. So there's a lot to be said for taking it at a slower pace and um, giving some space, you know, for your brain between those. Yeah, I think, I think you, you know, I think if you haven't been on a garden tour, um, you're, you're, you're maybe thinking of the uh, the visiting gardens that's done at conferences and things like that. They're trying to jam as much as they can into two days. Well, we're going to be there seven, eight, nine days. And so, you know, you can only, uh, by about day six, everybody is tired. You know, they, they, you know, they, they, they don't, you start kind of getting overload. So that's why it's really important not to jam everything in. Mm-hmm. So they have a really, they have a good experience. So it isn't, ex- they aren't exhausted. We try and give them one morning where they can sleep in, you know, uh, because we've just found that people just get really, really tired. But mm-hmm. that also says something about the age of the groups. You know, these are, these are not inexpensive. And so people have to have a certain amount of resources in order to, to join a tour. And uh, so that tends to be people that are close to retirement or retired. I mean, we get people from 40 up to 80, um, even over 80. 
but the majority is in the middle there. It's like 60, 65, 70, something like that, or right there in that middle portion. And there will be only a few in the 40, 40 year olds mm-hmm. and um, only a few at the 80s. So it, it, it has to do with the age of the group. Mm-hmm. And traveling is just exhausting. And it's being exhausting. At your own home. Right. Yeah. No matter right. what, what type yeah. of traveling it is. Um, so can you describe when your coach pulls up to a garden, uh, what normally happens? Does the homeowner slash gardener come out and greet the group and give a little mm-hmm. overview? Have yeah. you already briefed the group, um, maybe say on board the coach or that morning at breakfast about the garden and its history? What, uh, uh, first of all, I try to put on the website as much information to get them kind of thinking about the garden. So they have that as a reference point. I mean, I write a good solid paragraph, you know, on each garden. And then when we're on the coach and just before we arrive, about 15, 20 minutes before we arrive, I take the microphone and I tell them about the garden. Now, some a lot of these gardens, uh, many gardens I've been to before, so I kind of know now what the um, owner or the head gardener is going to say. So I try not to repeat too much, but I try and give them a, just a little bit of background, put it in some kind of historical perspective, uh, talk about it stylistically. Um, uh, maybe a teeny bit about the owners. And then we arrive, we get off the coach, and the owners are there to meet us or the head gardener. Most of the time, it's the owners. It's uh, many, many of the gardens that we go to, the owners are very deeply involved in their gardens. And even if they have a gardener, they prefer to do the tours rather than the having the gardener do it. Now, there are some large gardens that it's definitely the head gardener who meets us. Um, and then they give their kind of, they give whatever they think is a good way of introducing the garden to the group. And then we just all disperse. <laughs> Everybody goes their own way. Um, I, I've learned that um, Americans will not stay with, <laughs> stay with the group. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and if we have the owner go through with uh, thinking that they're going to lead the, the group through, it's mm-hmm. kind of embarrassing because everybody, you know, six people are over here taking pictures and mm-hmm. three or four in that direction. Some are running ahead. So I, we, we try always to let the homeowner know this is a very independent group and they will, they will want to just um, uh, go their own way. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you could be available in the garden in case they have questions, that would be nice. So that's mm-hmm. the way it usually works. And so they come back and they're asking the owner, um, you know, about various things. And the owners have special things that they want to point out to people who want to follow them. So it, it, it's, 
Does that answer your question? Mm-hmm. Oh, perfectly. Yeah, that makes sense that, especially, um, and so true about, about American, uh, that it's like herding cats. Somebody gets it distracted is. over there, and then they're like, ooh, what is that allium over there? Um, so I can imagine that a lot of the questions are probably about specific plants and ID yes. questions. And especially, you know, because in Europe, there are so many uh, plants that they have that we do not have, or that we have only, you know, we may have one or two that is available to us of a particular species. And, and in Europe, there'll be 15. And so, um, you know, you never know quite what you're looking at. So um, I've learned to know a lot of the European plants. And usually there's one or two people on the tour that are real plant nerds and they know an awful lot and so we uh you know kind of turn to them for some information sometimes and then also um my favorite um let's say partner uh, on these tours is some is a as a dutch guy from uh from the tour company that i partner with in uh in the netherlands and he knows a huge amount about plants. So if I can't answer, you know, I say, go ask Hans. <laughs> and, uh, you know, or we ask the owners. Mm-hmm. But when we get back on the coach, many people have pictures that they, they say, now, what was this? Can, let's find out. And so we do a lot of kind of trying to identify things. And sometimes, uh, if at all possible, at the end, we go to a nursery, a local nursery that is known to be, you know, have an extensive uh, number of plants that we may have seen throughout the week. They're selling them. So you can go through and you can check labels mm-hmm. and take photographs, too. So there's a lot of that that goes on. That's a great resource to always include on a garden tour, I find. is Yeah. In the day at a nursery, that it's always nice, even if you are not allowed to buy and bring the plants home. And you are not. Yeah. (laughs) So even though you're like, even if I could get this on the plane, I'm not allowed to. But yeah, that's always an important part. Um, Is there any um, issues with language barriers or do you find that plant people all speak the same plant Latin? Well, everybody in Europe does use Latin for plant names. They don't use common names. So, uh, but most of the people on my tours do know Latin names of plants. But in terms of language for speaking language, you know, uh, Europe, uh, English is now the common language almost everywhere, except uh, in a few places. In France, it's not as easy. Um and sometimes in Germany, we run across people who don't, who aren't fluent in, in English. But most are so fluent that all the owners speak to us in English. Um, I'm trying to, you know, I, I hope I'm not overgeneralized. I'm trying to think, is there anybody that doesn't? Yeah. It, uh, the other thing is that Hans, who I like to have with me, speaks four languages. So... He knows French, he knows, you know, Dutch, obviously, English, a little bit of uh, Italian, a little bit of Spanish. So, um, 
And when we went to Italy uh, last year, we had a woman who has been studying Italian and doing Italian chores. She's Dutch, but she has been doing them for 30 years, 35 years. So she was very fluent and it was great fun to listen to her translate for us. <laughs> mm, nice. Yeah. So going to some of the tours, uh, some of the gardens a few years in a row and maybe about the same time of year, basically, at some of the gardens. Do you, Carolyn, ever get tired of looking at gardens? Uh, I don't. I don't, no. Isn't that weird now that I think about it? (laughs) I don't think that's weird. I don't think that's weird at all, but I think non-gardeners would think that's weird. Yes. (laughs) You know, one of the things, one of the things is that is that the weather is different each year so that something that that was blooming three years ago won't be blooming now you know won't be blooming on on my third visit or it will look or they've just had a drought or they've uh you know everything is early or everything is late or you know so the fact that i go to the netherlands the second week of um august each year the gardens are not the same. And you can see it in the photographs that I take each year. They're different. You know, some years it's, uh, they're, uh, the colors are, are like absolutely fantastic. And the next year it's like toned down. They've had a drought or something and the colors are not as rich. Uh, but the textures are really wonderful or something like that. Mm-hmm. And did the owners ever say the classic line of, you should have been here last week? Well, if they do, I don't go back. It's true. I mean, I know that sounds harsh, but, you know, if you can't talk to us about what we're seeing now, and if you're making mm-hmm. my my travelers who have spent a lot of money to get here, mm-hmm. you know, feel regretful and feel like they aren't getting the full experience, then I, you don't know how to talk about your garden. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, you know, and there's really a couple of gardens that I won't go back to because the owners, uh, you know, did that repeatedly. Mm. Over here is my blah, 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 blah. And I know it doesn't look so good right now, but last week it was incredible. And they, and they would do that over and over again. Mm-hmm. So to me, you have to have a good narrative. It is a bit of a show, but it, you know, I, uh, I, and if you don't have that narrative, I'll be patient a little bit, but otherwise I don't, I don't want to go back to a garden where somebody, um, is, is not, does not think, does not show that they are happy with their garden. Mm-hmm. So it partially is, I'm sure, insecurity, but also inexperience. Inexperience. And, I, and I've debated, you know, whether to write to those people and say, you know, um, I don't know how I would say it. <laughs> you know, that. <laughs> that say, live, was, live in the moment. There's something to yes, find in every live season. Live in the moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stop making excuses for the past. So you got to entertain and, and do it, you know, as best you can that day when you woke up that day. Yes. 
Um, so moving on to your uh, Facebook community, it's yeah. I would describe it as a curated experience of garden tours, but done through a Facebook interface. Is that how you think of it? Gosh, I didn't think of it as garden tours, but maybe it is. I do think of it as curated. You're absolutely right. Actually, when I did when I started the Facebook page, um, I. I first just showed my own work and then I got very bored with that. And so I decided I wanted to show gardens that I thought were good because, you know, in any designer's life, you're, you're caught between what the client wants, what your climate is, Mm -hmm. what your community ethos is about design. And it's never as much as you can imagine. I mean, you would, you know, you would love to have, some freedoms or some other kinds of situations than you do have. So, uh, so I started showing other people's work and my, it's really a celebration of garden design by professionals and by homeowners. So, um, I'd say, you know, maybe 60, 40, 60 per- percent professionals and 40 percent homeowner designed gardens and a lot of times it isn't that the homeowners designed gardens uh wouldn't be I wouldn't want to show them but they but they don't have good photographs Mm -hmm. and that's one of the things I insist on I show you know really I try to show really good photographs so most of the gardens are professionally shot and um, and I use those. What was your question, Kathy? <laughs> Just that how you thought of your Facebook page curation. If you thought of it yeah. as garden tours, or you're thinking no, of it more I as didn't. garden sharing. Yeah, yeah. I, mm-hmm. What I was sharing the best do, work when I first went on to Facebook, I was fairly uh, surprised at the way that garden designers were showing their work. I didn't think that they were showing it showing showing work that could stand up to the work that other professional designers were doing in in um interiors landscape architecture architecture that kind of thing and I felt the reason was is because they weren't taking the photography seriously I really felt that they could have they could have done better. And so I decided, you know, there's so much great work being done out there, but it's people have to up their game. And so with the photography. So that's mm-hmm. what I was really that was in the back of my head. It isn't so much in the back of my head now. <laughs> mm-hmm. But at that time it was. I wanted I thought it was um just really important that we become more professional. And, um, so that's how I started. And that's, and that's what first attracted all the Europeans to my page. Um, that I get, it was that I was showing professional work and showing it well. Mm -hmm. And you're sharing, um, great gardens from all over the world. I Um, do. I do. Yes. I show all over the world. I mean, you know, I've got. Uh, mucho fo- 
folders of uh, for designers from all over. There are, there are countries that I would love to see more work, but they are not online, so mm-hmm. I can't. You know, like South Africa is just now beginning to have its designers uh, online. But up until now, it has, it's been almost impossible to find good photographs. And what do you find uh, that the people who follow your page are most interested in? Well, it changes. Mm-hmm. You know, that initial, you know, when, it, when, my, when my page was really growing, growing, growing every night, you know, 1,000 to 1,500 uh, more followers. Um, I mean, that was over a year and a half, two years. That, and that's how I got up to a million. Um, uh, you know, that was, that was a more professional, professionally interested group. Now, um, it's, it's more, uh, home gardeners, you know, people who, who want to find inspiration somewhere or love looking at pretty pictures of gardens Mm -hmm. or, or want to be, inspired by some little design trick or design feature or element in a garden. And uh, they, that's what they're looking for. And that's what they seem to enjoy. And do you think COVID has had any impact about how people are spending time online and and what their tastes are now? Uh, I haven't noticed it. No. I mean, my um, what affects my page more than anything else is the algorithm. The Facebook algorithm has changed a number of times in the years that I've been doing this. Mm. And um, just, let's see, I'm trying to think. Oh, I'd ha- I, I probably have it written down somewhere. But just in the last year, it changed again to the advantage of my kind of page. Mm. So suddenly there was this leap in how many people were on my page every day. Um, You know, so let's say it was 800. Let's say I posted an album about a garden. It would get 800 likes before, and now it's getting 3,000. So, and that has nothing to do with anything different that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. All to do with the algorithm. And there was a time when I had, now, <laughs> I don't know whether you're interested in this, Kathy. Tell me to stop if you <laughs> No, go on. <laughs> well, um, in the first phase when I was having so many followers, um, sometimes my posts would get, they would frequently get 15,000, 20,000 likes. And sometimes would go up to thirty five thousand. And then I remember so clearly when it happened, it was May in 2016. And suddenly it dropped to like four or 500. And it didn't matter what I did. I couldn't figure out what was Mm -hmm. I doing wrong. I wasn't doing anything wrong. Mm -mm. You know, um, you know, I thought about um, doing ads or what do you call it when you 
boost your post. Yeah, push and it or boost it. Or I did it. it. I did it maybe two or three times, and then I said, "This is this is. I'm not going to do that anymore." <laughs> so I stopped. So you know, everything else other than those few boosts that I did is completely organic, and it all it is is that the algorithm changes. Mm-hmm. Which it could change in you know a split Any second minute. tomorrow again. Yeah, That's Facebook right. has all the control, but yeah. um, I, there are certain pages that I make sure that I check on every day, whether they show up in my feed or not, like, mm-hmm. because sometimes they don't show up in my feed and every day I might comment or like something on that page still doesn't show up in my feed. So who knows, Weird. who knows <laughs> the Facebook algorithm? Yeah. Weird. So moving on to your book, um, okay. I realized before we didn't talk about actual publishing date so when is it due out oh kathy i just found out yesterday oh god it's been pushed again this is the fifth time Mm -hmm. so now the publication date is november 24th but i'm not even sure it'll be then okay but you can still pre-order it now on amazon be Mm pre-ordered and you can pre-order it um by you know any online bookseller mm-hmm. or through your your local bookshop they yep. can order it for you if you want to give them the business and that way you know it's it's sitting there and it's ready when it does come out yes. when, that, when that actual yeah. date does happen well i'm sorry to hear it got pushed back a little more but just more anticipation but <laughs> listeners i'm looking at the pdf file of the book right now <laughs> So I got a little special preview. It's 336 gorgeous pages. And one thing I wanted to ask you about the book, I was skimming through the index and you've indexed the gardens by country and location um, with, and sometimes they have a Facebook page or they have their own website for the owners of the gardens. Um, And then you have a separate listing for their designers. So, and that shows a big difference between the owner gardener ones and the designed ones so what would you say the percentage in your book uh, are of um, self I guess designed and maintained versus uh, professionally designed I think it's something like uh, a little bit over 50 percent is homeowner designed and 50 percent is um, designers help them in some way Mm-hmm. So, uh, a lot of the gardens that are described, uh, they're amusing to me because they all, some of them have names. <laughs> so the name, or European, it's, yes. Most European gardens have names. Mm-hmm. Or it's so-and-so's garden. So mm-hmm. like Jane Smith's garden, if it doesn't have an official name. Um, yeah, but I think more Americans have... need to name our gardens. We I do to... too. Exactly. I do too. Yeah. So something like, I don't know, Brown Cottage on the corner or something. <laughs> so just something. No, just Brown yeah. Cottage. Just Brown, Brown Cottage. Brown Cottage Garden. That would be a nice name, not on the mm-hmm. corner. Too long. And you're, you're, yeah, we all want to make it as more descriptive as possible. But yeah, simpler is definitely better. Um, The book is very photo heavy. um, And these are not photos in general that you took yourself, but are professional photos that that you have purchased or had taken for the book. None of them. I didn't have. I didn't have the budget to have any taken for the book. Mm-hmm. They are uh, photographs that 
were taken by a professional that we purchased. Um, but a lot of them by are by the owners too. Mm. You know, it isn't it isn't all professional photographs. Mm-hmm. I did take a few, but not I didn't um I I felt the ones that I had taken, you know. I take photographs on the run on a tour, <laughs> so it's not at the best time of day. It, you know, it, it, they're they're not the best photographs that one could take of that garden. Um, so, and professionals are able to be there at really optimal times and take, as are the owners. Mm-hmm. And so the book is organized by country and then goes mm-hmm. through the gardens. Um, did you consider other ways of organizing it? No. Mm-hmm. That seemed the logical way to do mm-hmm. it. Like by style or anything else, but yeah, by going no, through well, each country. Mm-hmm. You may have missed, but I, you know, in order to get into this book, you had to have your garden open to the public at least one day a year. Mm. So. Okay. And most are open more than one day a year. I mean, some are open all summer long. Some are open every weekend during the summer, you know, that kind of thing. Some Mm -hmm. are open, you know, like uh, uh, with, uh, you know, the country's garden days, open garden days, Mm -hmm. um, you know, which may be six times a year or something like that. Um, So they... uh, uh, it was a, it, that was that that was one of the main re- things that I was looking for. So there were a lot of gardens that I eliminated because they didn't have that. Hmm. So that were the I ones mean, that were totally longer, private, was much longer. But you know that was the way that my uh, editor and I decided was a good way to, you know, be able to narrow it down to fifty. Mm-hmm. And did you have a B list of gardens that you're like, this will be the next book? Oh my God, no. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, one and done, one and done. <laughs> one and done. Uh, <laughs> no, this was a this was a difficult enterprise for me. Mm-hmm. And uh I really uh, you know, it was hard enough to finish this. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. I hear that uh, a lot from book authors that, you know, it's like giving birth to a child that they're, it is. Uh, it is. It, once it's done and then it's out, it was a, it was a long, arduous process. But then a couple years later, all of a sudden the itch starts again and somehow oh. they can be talked into it. <laughs> so don't be surprised. <laughs> So uh, I know this is like asking uh, one of the hardest questions possible, but from the selections in the book, do you have a personal favorite, a garden that you would say, this is the one that has my heart? Well, it wouldn't be one. How about a top three? How's that? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I think the first one would be... uh, Broughton Grange. It's an English garden. And the part of that, it's a large garden. And the part of it that I focused on was the walled garden. Um, and it, to me, uh, is a wonderful, exa- wonderful example of a 21st century garden uh, in England. 
So, you know, you do have the walled garden aspect, you know, which is very English, you know, giant 10, 12 foot walls. And then, uh, but this garden, you know, many, many gardens. Do you want me to tell you why I picked it? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Okay. I was, I thought maybe I was going beyond something much. Okay. Uh, so, so, uh, this many gardens in England, you go to, when you visit them, they're made up of garden rooms and they're very inward looking. Each room has a theme. It's got high hedged wall, hedge, uh, walls around it. And there'll be multiple garden rooms. And it's a wonderful style. I have nothing against it. <laughs> nothing at all. It's a wonderful style. It started in the early 20th century, uh, usually attributed to Hidco, Lawrence Johnston, who was an American, kind of transplanted to England. And uh, he just made this garden so that it it was actually the walls were for sheltering because there was a huge wind that went through the the garden. And so he made these, each one, you know, a discreet room that with arches or doorways to lead from one to the other. But Broughton Grange, uh, and so this dominated English garden design. In English gardens for over a hundred years. Uh, you still see gardens that are made that way. But Broughton Grange was one of the uh, gardens that right after the turn of the century, um, Tom Stuart Smith, who was the designer, designed it in a very different way. Uh, instead of being enclosed, it was, it did have walls, but it was open on a, a, a one side so that it took in the countryside around. And that's a revolutionary idea uh-huh. in English gardens to allow the countryside to be part of your garden. Um, not, I'm not saying that there weren't gardens that did that before, but he did it in such a a kind of grand way, uh, grand in the sense of a big gesture, not grand in the sense of um, uh, blah, 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 um, not, uh, uh, expensive or, or mm-hmm. um, you know, gilded or something like that. And so, and what it is, is it's three terraces. And on the bottom terrace, there is a parterre, which is very common in a lot of gardens. But this parterre, is modern and it's modern in the sense that instead of having the rectilinear little hedges of boxwood to enclose to make a pattern he he took the uh the venation the the vein he took three leaves from the surrounding countryside the the surrounding uh, hedgerows and he blew up the pattern of the veins in the leaves. And then he used those to make the pattern of the garden. So it feels completely unlike any other uh, parterre that you've seen. Hmm. Yeah, it looks very almost serpentine. And that I could almost have guessed was one of your favorites because that is also the cover photo to the book. Right. Well, 
Yes. <laughs> that you know it, when you're when you're choosing a photo for the cover it's mm-hmm. more what is what is the 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 photograph that's going to get catch the eye mm-hmm. you want something that's very appealing to the eye and that was certainly that photograph by uh Clive Nichols was definitely that mm-hmm. and then there were two more terraces one had a huge uh rectangular kind of pond uh, and, and then on the next level was a completely jam-packed um, uh, perennial garden, perennial grasses garden. And it, the, the planting, except for the bottom terrace it, throughout, is very, very naturalistic, but it's very naturalistic in an English way. It's not like a Pete Aldolf garden which is the naturalism that most Americans have seen, even though they may not call it that it's it, uh, but it's, and it's just so beautiful. I mean, I've been at there at three t- different times of the year and I, I find it an astonishingly well done garden. It takes an idea and it just, it's thoroughly English, but it's also thoroughly 21st century. Hmm. And that's what I like about it. Hmm. And your other two choices? Okay. So the second one would be in France. And it's uh, Jardin Coombe, which is in Normandy. And once again, uh, and I think this is, if you read the book, you know, you'll see that I, I, this is an important point for me. And this garden speaks of the country that it is in. It's, uh, it, it, uh, French formalism is something that all Americans think that that's the way French gardens are. But in Normandy and a lot of other country places in, in France, the garden is, uh, the gardens are much more kind of countryish you know with lots of pretty flowers and might feel a little bit more like they have they have more in common with the cottage garden uh well uh plume takes that idea uh of relating to the countryside and puts on top of it a french formal kind of uh, uh structure so that there's a grid it's completely modern or contemporary i don't i have to be careful how i use that word it's completely 21st century but it does have those aspects you know that you're in france and i think that's it's a wonderful marriage of those two things it's out in the country there are cows um you know grazing in the fields around all around it was farm fields and it's completely open to the far, to those to that country atmosphere and yet it's a very structured kind of environment they have um uh, a the main part of the garden is a an orchard that was there when they came and they put overlaid on the orchard a grid of uh, uh like wildflower meadows so that's it's a 
patch, a, a square or a rectangular patch of metal with war, with mown paths in between. And, you know, it may not sound that powerful, but when you're there, it really is. It's like a, um, you know that you're within a world that, that has taken into account the culture that it is in and um, has done something fresh and exciting with it. Hmm. Okay, now you want a third. <laughs> Let's see, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get myself thinking about what is the third garden that I want, I would, um, Pulling out my list. Well, there's a garden in Scotland where the owner is called um, Whitberg House, and it's a an uh, it's kind of an old mansion, uh, um, not a castle, a mansion, and uh, it's out in the country and has views across beautiful fields and countryside and then away from the house is a walled garden the when the current owners moved in it had really been deteriorating for a long time and so uh the, the wife wanted to make a garden she hired a gardener and they set out to make something that she would feel happy with um, and she first designed what would be called, you know, um, a kind of um, standard English garden with um, double borders, you know, where you look at the you look at the um, the planting from the outside. You don't go into the planting. There are no paths going through it. It's like a display. Um, and uh, she finally got all of her plants kind of, you know, the way she wanted them. And in the summer, they have uh, terrible winds that come through, Scottish winds. She says, Scottish gales um, that come through. Mm. And um, they, it just, it was just when her tallest plants were starting to bloom and it just flattened everything. And so she thought at that point, I've got to do something. I've got to figure out, you know, I can't have this kind of garden here. And she was heartbroken. And um, so she started investigating and gradually, eventually started traveling. And she started seeing gardens that were both in England and on the continent that she found, uh, you know, gradually found inspirational and got an idea about what she wanted to do. And her garden is, again, like Broughton Grange, it's got formal elements, but it's also very naturalistic, only it's naturalistic in her own kind of way. So that there are very, uh, there's a, there's a water um, pond, uh, water feature, that is just very solemn with uh, apple trees growing on the edges, which is very beautiful. She has a, a, a vegetable garden that she thinks is absolutely wonderful. Um, she has, do you know what um, hedges on stilts are? Mm -mm. 
Okay, well, it's, it's a way of hedging that allows you to have screening up above, but down below, it, it, it's, it's open to, uh, to the sides. So when you walk in, you walk in through some really huge gates, and she has a double row of these hedges on stilts so that you can't really see everything where the where the the trees trunks meet the ground you can kind of see through to the other gardens and so it's got this very formal entrance when you get to the end of it it's uh it's a grass garden very wild and because it's very windy there you know when you go it's like the wind is blowing everywhere and and uh it has this it's like control and then release control and then release. And then in her very naturalistic garden, which is just beyond the hedges on stilts, it is a kind of, um, it's naturalistic. It's got grasses, but it's also got elements like a, um, a, a parterre that's totally kind of taken apart so that it's completely loose and fluffy and colorful uh, but it's got that uh, that four the four quadrants of a parterre and uh, but it's it's uh, it's got uh, you know it lots of things like nepeta and uh, purple-leaved plants and perovskia and all kinds of grasses. And it's this combination, again, I think I described it well when I said it's this control and then release, control and release. Mm. It's a feeling that you get there that someone has expressed themselves in a very artful way. You know, I asked her, you know, what what is the, what is it that, what, when is the time that you like to be in this garden the most? And she says, well, late in the summer, mm. uh, when the sun is setting in the late afternoon, you know, when those afternoon shafts of light come in and everything just glows. Um, now she, you know, she, she's an interesting woman. She is, uh, she, she is not warm and fuzzy, you know, she, uh, but this has obviously been an artistic um, expression for her. And she's fortunate that she has, you know, resources to have this really beautiful setting. But I felt as though it had more than that. You know, she could have made, she could have just turned it over to a gardener, basically, mm-hmm. to do. But instead, you know, she grows... Um, the garden includes, and I didn't mention this, includes a lot of annuals, both grasses and, uh, you know, flowering annuals. And she grows all of them from seed. Um, they have a beautiful little greenhouse. It's not so little. Why am I saying it's little? It's not so little. But, um, you know, and she she's totally taken up with the development of this thing that has taken her a good 10 years to kind of get to a place where it's mature enough to show to other people. 
So it's pretty impressive. Hmm. And definitely sounds like that's the passion of her life. And as they say in cooking, you know, put a little love in it. And yes, yeah, that's, that's how she expresses her love is through her garden. Well, you know, the, um, I think that almost, I could say almost across the board, that is the way the owners feel about their gardens. Um, they may not have had, have done as much or gone as far as, as she did, but they absolutely are passionate. And I think that was one of the things that attracted me to, to them and wanted, what made me want to have it in the, in my book is that there was a deep, deep passion for making a garden. It is the act of making, um, that. I was really focused on. I was going to say that we should have a whole other conversation at some point of the uh, pathology of gardening and the obsession <laughs> and the obsession because uh, unlike many other passions or works of art, uh, gardening is essentially ephemeral. It's an experience or a point That's in right. time. Um, so trying to create perfection you could keep trying and trying, but there will never be that one point in time, but it's, it's all about the experience. And thank you, Carolyn, for taking us on this journey, um, this adventure and describing uh, a little preview of your book and what it's like to go on your garden tours with you. And for our listeners, could you share that Facebook page address that, that we touted so much earlier and how else that people could get in touch with you? Well, I think the best place to get in touch with me is on my website. If you just Google Carex Tours, that is the easiest way to get in touch with me. You'll see, I mean, not that I will be there, but you will see how to get in touch with me. Mm-hmm. All of my, you know, my email address and my phone number are all there. And um, we'll embed the that link also in this episode. And Carex is, of course, spelled C-A-R-E-X. And um, the the Facebook page is facebook.com backslash G-D-B-Y-C-M. And what that stands for is Garden Design by Carolyn Mullet. G-D-B-Y-C-M. Excellent. And if you if you Google Carolyn Mullet, you'll get it will come up. Hmm. Well, thank you again, Carolyn. You're welcome, Kathy. This was this was um, very nice. <laughs> Plant profile: goldenrod, solidago species. Goldenrod is falsely accused of causing fall allergies as it blooms at the same time as ragweed, the real culprit. It is also an easy-to-grow plant that many home gardeners treat as a weed or ignore it for its commonness. However, goldenrod has much to recommend it. It has late summer into fall color that lasts for weeks. Pollinators love it, and it grows without any care from this gardener. What more could you want for a back-of-the-border perennial? 
It also makes a great cup flower and is an economical filler in mixed arrangements with more expensive flower selections. It will self-sow vigorously, and that means weeding it out between pavers and other places where a tall plant cannot be allowed to remain. It is fairly shallow-rooted, though, so it's not a big problem to pull up after a recent rain. You can also prevent rampant reseeding by cutting off the flower heads after they are past peak and before they spill their seeds to the winds. Most Solidago species originate in the meadows and open woodlands of North America. There are better behaved cultivars of goldenrod available that are more compact, have showier flowers, and behave less vigorously than the straight species. They include golden fleece, gold rush, and fireworks. Goldenrod are not picky about soil types and do not need fertilizing. They do need full sun to do their best flowering. Like many other perennials, the best times to divide or move them are in spring or fall. Goldenrod, you can grow that. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter by going to anchor.fm backslash Kathy dash gents backslash support for as little as 99 cents a month. You can become a listener supporter and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Another way to support garden DC is to go to washingtongardener.com and subscribe to Washington Gardener magazine. week's what's blooming in the garden I thought I'd share a sweet little native plant that is blooming its little head off right now in the garden gives a good eight week period of bloom which is so nice to see in a in a little native meadow plant and that is conoclinium colonestinum and the common name is wild ageratum or blue mist flower. Some know it as blue bone set. Some know it as wild ageratum or just mist flower. Uh, to make it even more confusing, uh, the Latin name was previously Eupatorium colonestinum. So that's commonly known. Most people know it as blue mist flower or mist flower. It has these pale purple little ageratum like flowers. Um, but it differs from the annual plant or ageratum in that it can get pretty leggy. Um, you do want to plant it amongst things that can support it or give it a bit of a shearing back in late spring um, so it doesn't get as leggy later on. Um, it will naturalize around by both rhizomes and seeds. It prefers full sun, um, a little bit of shade, uh, can be tolerated, but it definitely likes moist, hummusy soils. So the edges of ditches or rain gardens are a perfect spot for it. Um, this is just an adorable little flower and one of my favorite colors, that, that really pale, light lavender purple. Um, so I recommend it for your fall garden. 
um, in areas where say you want to edge a bed or have something freely seating amongst a little wildflower garden or cottage garden that's a perfect choice for you the blue mist flower Hey there, garden lovers. This is Ray Eaton, founder of Discover Garden Tours. I'm here to invite you all to join us next April and experience the beauty of Dutch gardening and horticulture on our Discover the Netherlands tour. Please join us and speaker, author, and social media influencer, Kathy Jentz, for this once-in-a-lifetime garden adventure. We'll visit private and public gardens, flower shows and auctions, and much, much more. Highlights include the Kuchenhof Gardens, Hortus Botanicus Leiden, and the Flora Holland Flower Auction. The tour dates are from April 16th through April 25th, 2024. Full details and registration are available on our website at discoverourtours.com. Remember, space is limited, so if you don't want to miss out, I would highly recommend signing up today. We look forward to seeing you in the Netherlands and sharing this unforgettable journey together. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.